So hello, I am so happy to be here. I've been here um, a couple other times and it was always so much fun to chat with this community. Um, I know that this is a special community, so it's always an honor to be in the midst of you all. Um, so it is also an honor to close out this series that you all have been walking through, um, Naked Spirituality. Um, I will be sharing the final word of the 12, I believe, words <laughs> that um, describe the spiritual life. And it is Advent. So it is just a brand new season starting next week. And I will be back in December. So I'm super excited about that. Um, and yeah, isn't that just so wild? Another year in the books. And so I do hope that you get some time to slow down and reflect in the last weeks of 2022. Um, but before I continue, um, I did want to also take, um, I guess this would be our second moment of silence, to honor the victims that uh, died last night and those who were injured um, in last night's mass shooting at uh, Club Q uh, in Colorado Springs um, in this senseless act of hate. I, uh, you know, sending love and strength to the victims and the loved ones. Uh, or the loved ones, uh, the victims, loved ones, into the LGBTQIA plus community. And so just want to take a few minutes to honor um, them. So as I mentioned, um, I will be talking today about the final word of the series of words that y'all have been wrestling with. Words used to describe the spiritual journey, uh, naked spirituality. And can I just say that I love this idea, this topic of nakedness. Now, funny enough, I'm working on the manuscript of my second book, which is slated to release next fall. And it is a devotional for those of us, including myself, who do not read devotionals. And I have an entire reflection on nakedness, both physical and spiritual. So I was actually pretty excited to read a book in preparation for this sermon about a naked spirituality. So if it's okay with you, I'd actually love to close out this series, but start off um, my conversation with you all with not my word, but a short word on nakedness. Um, so to explain what he means by a naked spirituality in his book by that title, uh, Brian McLaren quotes Richard Rohr, who says that, quote, the goal of all spirituality is to lead the naked person to stand trustfully before the naked God. The important thing is that we're naked, he says. In other words, that we come without title, merit, shame, or even demerit. All we can offer to God is who we really are, which to all of us never seems like enough. I am sure that this is the way true lovers feel too. We come to God without shame, offering who we really are, which often feels like it's never enough. But the kicker, folks, is that it is. Everything we are is always enough. And it's beautiful 
because it's true. And we see glimpses of this truth all the way in the very beginning of the Christian story. Now, I know we all know the Genesis epic, so I won't harp on the details too much, except for one or maybe two. The detail that I love in this story is the question that God asks Eve and Adam right after that most terrible moment. Now, God asks a lot of really good questions in the Bible, right? If you heard my last sermon here at Grace Point, God asks Jonah another one of my favorite questions. He asks him if his anger is a good thing. And to find the answer to that question, you can go back and listen to that sermon. But it is one good question among many. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks his disciples Why are you crying? He asks Mary. He asks good questions. But there's one question in the Genesis narrative that I really love. After Eve and Adam eat the fruit, the story goes that their eyes are opened. And the very first thing that they do after that most terrible moment, after the world begins to die, is that they sowed fig leaves to hide their nakedness. Like, when you really stop to think about it, isn't that so curious? In the story, the entire history of the universe is changed by this catastrophic thing called sin that enters the narrative, and the direct result, Eve and Adam look down and go, wow, I'm naked, and then proceed to not be naked anymore. And then comes a really good question that God asks that I find to be so profound. Who told you that you were naked? Now, the weight of this question rests on the context, of course. A chapter earlier, after the woman is created, the text says that they were naked and without shame. What an interesting and beautiful detail. They're vulnerable, exposed, and it was enough. Their nakedness was good just like all the other good things God created. It isn't until they first realized their nakedness that they first felt shame. And this makes me wonder if that's what God meant when God asked that question. Perhaps God meant something like, since when is your nakedness shameful? Throughout scripture, human corruption ties nakedness and shame together, two sides of the same coin. We see this almost immediately in Genesis. After the flood, Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk from his own wine, passes out naked in his tent. I mean, he had a really tough 40 days. His son Ham peeks in the tent and then runs to tell his brothers about it. Apparently, this was such a big deal that Noah responds by cursing his son's descendants. Now, what some scholars speculate is that what Ham did was actually ridicule his father in his most vulnerable state, causing Noah's seemingly outrageous reaction, a reaction that was most likely rooted in shame. Daniel Donahue writes that shame arises when we recognize threats to our vulnerability, leaving us fearful of showing our full selves because of the risk of being found weak incapable, ugly, insignificant, and less than gloriously powerful and relational, delightful and lovable in the eyes of God and fellow humans. Y'all, I find it extremely unnerving that our most embodied selves, our truest, most vulnerable, intimate, and natural state, our nakedness, is tied to our greatest 
shame. Who told you that you were naked? I'm particularly interested in how Brene Brown defines shame, the shame expert. She says that it is the, quote, intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. You see, not only is love at the center of shame, but so is belonging. I think this is important because at the core, it is belonging that is fractured at the quote-unquote fall. You see, unashamed, Eve and Adam belonged to their bodies and their God. At home, in their nakedness, they communicated a deep truth to us, and that is that our bodies are our homes, the places where our souls reside. So what happens when our very homes become the sources of our shame? How can we find rest? How can we exist fully? How can we love ourselves and let ourselves be loved? Shame diminishes our potential for intimacy in every single aspect of life, moving us away from ourselves, each other, and the divine. I wasn't introduced to white evangelicalism until my early 20s, and because of, because of this, I was naive to all of the things that came along with it. When I began seminary, it became clearer and clearer every week that the professors weren't really speaking to me in their lessons. Obviously, I was a woman, so I was very limited, according to their theology, with what I could do with the information I received, but also the lens from which my professors taught and from which they encouraged us to engage was their own, of course. Most were born and raised in the rural South, not too far from uh, where they were teaching me about God. So the context from which they understood the world was such, of course. And the way they taught us to engage scripture reflected this reality too. It was presented though as the right, true, normal way, of course. And I remember constantly feeling like nothing I learned about the world, life, my faith, or the Bible related to me. I grew up in a large Latinx city where we danced salsa on the weekends and greeted strangers with a kiss on the cheek. I was conceived and born out of wedlock, and I lived the first part of my life with my single mother in a small apartment in La Sauecera, the southwest portion of Miami. And all of these details, which were essentially the opposite of those that who were teaching me about God, made me feel tainted, like I didn't belong. Was I not enough? good enough, domesticated enough, pure enough? Did the reality of my life, my experiences, my worldview make me too much or position me too far away from understanding and knowing God the way that I was supposed to? Trying to learn how to do the work of interpretation within a rural Southern framework only made me feel further from God and it made me feel like my experiences, my community, my culture were only getting in the way of me being able to understand the divine. As a newer evangelical, I was told that shame was no longer mine to bear, but how could I not feel shame as a Latina woman trying to fit the mold of whiteness within the context of patriarchy? I felt shame because the message I received over and over and over again was that I did not belong. Now, God's desire for us, excuse me, as beloved children is that we belong and even and especially in our most vulnerable state, 
in our truest, naked selves. May we be fully known, fully loved in all of who we are and know that it is enough. In this, there is true belonging. And it's this belonging that I want to narrow in on today as we close out this series. Excuse me, I have, I'm getting over the flu, so. <clears throat> it's this belonging that I want to narrow in on as we close out this series with the final word, which is nothing. As a reminder, y'all have reflected on here, thanks, oh, sorry, help, please, when, no, why, behold, and yes. And today we finish off with our final practice, which is contemplation or silence. I'm gonna reflect a little bit now on this idea of contemplation, (coughs) on the notion of sitting in silence with God, but first, I have to be honest. I kind of have a problem with silence. Not that silence itself makes me uncomfortable. I love sitting in silence, especially now that I have a young kid. Silence is wonderful and beautiful and very much sought out in my home. I'm one of those people that I don't really put music on in the car when I go for walks. I just love hearing nothing. I'm a fan of silence. But there's something I'm not a fan of, and that is a spirituality that asks me (coughs) to shut myself in a room and be quiet. As a woman, as a Latina woman, this does not feel liberating. And not that Brian McLaren is asking us to do that, right? But sometimes that is the narrative that we have received or that we receive from the church about contemplation. In the evangelical world, we were taught that this is what we must do to hear from God, that we must have quote unquote quiet time. We must shut ourselves alone on silent retreats in the hopes of hearing something of God. We must close ourselves off from the rest of the world, focus our attention solely on the mind. And listen, there is room for that. There are times in our lives when that is, excuse me, necessary and helpful, no doubt. But I do not believe that these things alone tell the story of contemplation, of living a life of awareness, of an ear tuned to hear from the divine. There's this overlooked passage in Jeremiah that a dear friend pointed out to me one day that changed me. In chapter nine, we find God upset at the injustice of God's people. So people call forth a lament, but God gives them specific instructions in doing so. God tells them to call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them, God says. Let them come quickly and wail over us until our eyes overflow with tears. You see, these wailing women were skilled grievers and the people were called to listen to their lament so that they may be led in it also. And friends, is this not a form of contemplation? Was God not speaking, communicating deep truths through the wailing, the grieving, the lamenting of women who were not silent, who the people were called to listen to? You see, I'm not interested in a spirituality that divorces my mind from my body, from the land, from my community, or from our collective voices. I'm interested in a spirituality that wails. But as I mentioned more um, earlier, 
more than one thing can be held within contemplation. For many marginalized people, including my indigenous ancestors, contemplation carries a particular weight. For those whose voices were silenced once the colonizers arrived to the scene, spirituality, in order to thrive, had to have an interior dimension to it, no doubt. But theirs was not a, con a contemplative life focused solely on intellectual musings. It may have been silenced by the dominant culture, but it was not disembodied. In fact, I argue that the faith of our ancestors, of our abuelitas, is not an intellectual faith, but one that lives in the hands and the preparation of food and clothes and the taking care of the land. I argue that this, these embodied practices are a form of contemplation, of a contemplative spirituality that is not lofty, but the kind of contemplation we arrive to not by disconnecting from ourselves, or from the world, but by connecting deep within the stories that live in our bodies. It's connecting to the stories around us, the stories the land tells us, the stories the people tell, the plants and the animals tell. It's paying attention. It's beholding the divine in all things. Friends, I think this is how many of our ancestors held on to their faith in the midst of oppression, suppression, and domination. And I think this is how we cling tight to ours. And sure, this can happen at home, alone, as you sit still, unhurried, focusing solely on your breath. But it can also happen while you're sitting under the oak tree or walking your dogs or while standing in line at the grocery store. Contemplation isn't about shutting ourselves off from the world, but about allowing ourselves to be awakened to all that is around us, primarily that which is overlooked, from the person sitting in the corner on the sidewalk to the creature building its nest in the tree. This is what I appreciate most about Jesus, who asks us to look at the birds of the sky, to notice the lilies of the field. Jesus often pointed us to the overlooked, the forgotten, inviting us to notice, to look closely. One of my favorite examples of this is found in Mark 12 in the story of the poor widow who gave everything she had. The narrative begins by Jesus saying that he, by saying that Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. I wonder what specific things Jesus was looking for. Was it her? Or was he simply observing as noticing things as Jesus does? The text then says that one poor widow came forward, put in two small copper coins worth a penny, Then Jesus called his disciples over and said, look, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change, but she from her hopeless po poverty has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. Now I've heard countless sermons praising this woman for giving all she had as proof that we must do the same, right? But when I read this story, I don't hear Jesus telling the disciples, do what she does. Instead, I notice Jesus saying first and foremost, hey, hey, come here, look at this woman, notice her. 
After seeing what she has done, Jesus called the disciples over, encouraging them to observe her. You see, he wasn't giving them a guilt trip, as it often is implied. Look at her, he says. Look at the woman that no one ever looks at. The disregarded, the pushed aside, that which we think there is nothing to learn from, pay attention to her. Barbara Brown Taylor notes that in order to see all there is to see, we must learn to look at the world not just once, but twice. The kingdom of God is this way, isn't it? Hidden in plain sight, and Jesus beckons us, friends, to look and then look closer. But this doesn't come easy. In fact, it takes a contemplative spirit right, to take a closer look, to learn from the world around us, to really see all that is happening in the natural world, we must trust that all things have the potential to teach. We must believe that there are truths we can learn about the divine in all things, from the ant to the elephant, from the widow to the child, if we're willing to listen. In fact, McLaren talks about silence as listening an active silence. He, I believe to really listen, we have to pay sacred attention. We have to be attentive. We have to act as participants, expectant that we will hear from God wherever and however God chooses to speak. Thomas Merton once called the fields, the rain, the sun, the mud, and the wind our spiritual directors. They form our contemplation They instill us with virtue. They make us as stable as the land we live in. And I want you to notice how the elements, the natural world itself speaks and teaches. We often tend to reduce both people and the natural world to empty vessels, listening only for what God might speak through them instead of what they might be teaching us themselves. As Anishinaabe writer Patty Crawick says, listening only for what God might be saying through something diminishes our investment in the world around us and disconnects us from everything, including people, because we don't listen to them either. Friends, what truths, what wisdom does the world and do people communicate in and of themselves? And do we believe that this wisdom is divine? I think Job was privy to this, like the biblical Job. He may be known for his unrelenting faith in God, but Job stands out to me because of the way he understands the natural world. When his friend tells him to repent so that his fortune will be restored, Job declines his advice by reminding him that divine wisdom can be found in the places we aren't expected to look. Ask behemoth and he will tell you the birds in the sky and they will teach you, says Job, or talk to the earth and it will teach you the fish of the sea will recount it for you. See, Job reminds us that there are endless lessons to learn from the world around us, from plants and animals who know the ins and outs of what it means to survive and thrive and flourish in this world. Even the Bible reminds us that all created things have potential to speak and to teach if we're willing to notice. 
This is one of the greatest parts of being human, finding kinship with all of creation as we learn more about ourselves and the divine among them. This is where we experience our deepest sense of belonging. So McLaren shares a story that I thought was a perfect way to describe this belonging this kinship that I'm referring to. He mentions a story by his friend Steve Bell and how once at a concert, Steve's piano player Mike was taking a solo and he seemed enthralled, inspired. There was a magical energy to this piano solo, he explains, and I'm sure you've seen or experienced something similar. So Steve, intrigued by what he was doing, locks eyes with Mike and begins playing on his guitar, trying to do everything he could uh, to support Mike's musical ideas, trying to accent his playing, his energy. He says, not always, but often enough, you can get so absorbed by what another player is doing on stage that you almost lose consciousness of yourself as you become absorbed toward another, he says. And he noticed that while he was playing off of Mike, Mike was also playing off of him. And the two were in this sort of cosmic synergy, completely enthralled and lost in each other's energy, a psychic vertigo, he called it. And he says that after that, he was weepy for weeks. Like it really got to him, really moved him because he felt God speak to him in that moment and say, this is who I am. This synergy, this feeling. He explains, the phrase that has come to me since is mutual othering. The highest moments of human experience and fullness occur when we lose ourselves or finally find ourselves in flourishing the other mutually. And this is because it is in these rare moments of mutual othering that we most resemble the one whose image we bear, God, whose oneness is not a numerical or numeral oneness like a tree is one, but relational oneness like a forest is one. And friends, when I read this, I could think of nothing more but belonging. This is what it means to belong to each other, to the divine, to ourselves. This is what it means to be so in tune with that belonging that we lose ourselves in the flourishing of another, the flourishing of all that is around us. This is what it means to listen, to pay attention. This is the contemplative life that doesn't ask us to disconnect, but one that asks us to do the opposite one that asks us to go deeper. I don't know if you can tell, but I was sick with the flu this past week and was locked up in my room feeling miserable, which by the way, this is my PSA. If you have not received your flu vaccine, please do if you are willing and able because this is the worst they've seen it in 10 years and it is absolutely brutal. But by like the fifth day, I was so tired of being cooped up within my four walls. And I kept looking longingly out the window at how gorgeous the days seemed. And because of the chilly weather, I was kind of nervous to go outside. Um, So I went up to my spouse and I was just pouting and upset. And I was just telling him like, man, so many beautiful days have passed without my enjoying them. And I was sad that we missed a friend's birthday party and my daughter's music class. And I was just all pouty and annoyed and that this flu had stolen so much from me. 
I was frustrated because I hadn't had time to write this sermon, and I was trying to think about what I'd say about silence and contemplation when I hadn't been very contemplative myself in my bedridden state. After venting to my spouse, I took a chair. I sat in the sun in my backyard under Miss Lady Oak, the tree that towers above my house like a promise, and I closed my eyes and I listened. I listened to the wind shushing through the branches of the trees, some bare, some with leaves still hanging tight. I listened to the squirrels scurrying from branch to branch, finding food. I listened to the starlings and the sparrows sing their truths to one another. And I beheld the divine in all of it. And I no longer felt pouty and annoyed, although it would have been perfectly fine if I still did, and the goal wasn't to not feel that way per se. It just sorta happened when I found myself in the midst of divinity. And in that moment, I realized that this is what contemplation is all about, right? It's not about, like I've said, disconnecting myself, but about connecting deeper to belonging to my body, to the world, to the land, to the wind, to the trees. In that moment, I needed to step outside of my four walls to feel alive again, to remember the web of life that I am a part of. But it doesn't always have to look exactly this way. Sometimes contemplation means we need to sit and observe like Jesus did, noticing the widow doing the thing that will awaken something in us, remembering that we do not exist in isolation, but each of us is part of the system that exploits her and others like her. Sometimes contemplation means we listen to the wailing women, letting their lament lead us in ours, remembering that grief does not belong to one person, but it is a collective experience. And I'm thinking about Club Q Like Lila Watson reminds us, our liberation is bound together. And if this is true, then so is our grief and so is our healing. We belong to one another. Sometimes contemplation means looking to behemoth to learn the things of God. And I'll admit, I have no idea what behemoth is, but like Job, it means trusting the earth to teach me about divinity or trusting my child who is too young to speak to teach me some important truths about life. Contemplation is remembering that we are part of a rhythm and an ecosystem of belonging, one that is greater than us. The relationships that sustain us are rooted in mutual flourishing. And it begins from within and flows out into the rest of the world. May you go in that truth today, my friends. Thank you.